This is a good morning. This is another day the Lord has given us. Well, they say this is the day that the Lord has made. And yesterday was the day the Lord made, and the day before that, and the next day that He gives us. It's always His day. And isn't it amazing that He would bless us with the life, breath, be able to enjoy His, uh, His life that He's given us. And uh, it is a privilege to be worshiping with uh, God's people today. Never want to forget about that. Now we are moving along in um, Corinthians. And uh, what we have here is, um, again, the Corinthians have to be corrected on so many things. And we all do uh, on different issues. And all the way through Corinth, Paul will keep showing uh, one thing after another. Now, Greece was known for its lawsuits, and it had a reputation. Uh, And what people did is they took advantage of other people, and in in, in a bad way. Now, whenever we talk about courts today, we're not running down courts and saying we shouldn't have court and we shouldn't have justice because that is a gift from God too. I mean, He established that. But the way that people use it today sometimes is something that can be in in, in a bad way, uh, taken advantage of. Uh, friends and neighbors and fellow countrymen just to get uh, some kind of a maybe a financial advantage uh, or other little trivial matters that uh, can be solved um, w- without having to go to, to court. And so it was a common way for people back at that time to, whenever you had a, um, an issue, you just go to court. You know, you wouldn't even try to work it out, and people weren't willing to do that. Um, We look at the Roman world and then we look at Corinth. Corinth wasn't any different than the Roman world or the Greek world. And uh, that would not surprise us in the least of what was happening in Corinth, would it? Whatever was happening out in the world was happening in Corinth. And uh, matter of fact, it seemed like they would be leading the way uh, many times. Uh, Corinth, uh, as far as the church is concerned, definitely had chinks in their armor, didn't they? And we know that uh, we look at our country today and uh, the church in this America has all sorts of chinks too, doesn't it? Very similar problems. All the problems that we have looked at in Corinth, we realize that uh, we have those here. Um, seem like you know people here today, they'll go to court at the drop of a hat. They don't even try to work it out. Boom, they just go there and... Some people want uh, some kind of compensation that they don't even desire uh, or deserve, or uh, maybe they think they deserve. But we have a corrupt justice system. Um, not every place, but when you have man, you have sin, and when you have things that are involving justice, uh, mankind is not going to follow the same things that uh, God would want, and eventually it turns corrupt. And uh, we know that we have we can have corrupt justice system. We can have a corrupt judge. We can have corrupt lawyers, and we have corrupt people that are uh, greedy and wanting to take advantage of people for their own sort of gain, for the, for money. People are selfish, uh, and sad to say, Christians are selfish too, aren't they? We are selfish. We are always battling selfishness. And that's the thing that hopefully that the Lord is rooting out more and more. We're so bent on self. What did Jesus say? Forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow me. Uh, we're working on that. or He's working on it. On us. But 
This section that we are dealing with today comes right off the heels of Paul's riveting instructions that he had on bringing justice to uh, a member of a church who had been disciplined for a very gross immorality in the church. And uh, something had to be done. And God demands that kind of justice to be done in the church because God is a holy God and He demands holiness and justice is to be carried out uh, in in the church among professing believers. Um, The sin... Uh, obviously was so bad that that had to be taken care of. Uh, We'll call that consequential sin. There are consequences of uh, certain terrible sins. And that has to be nipped in the bud before it spreads out and gets into a disease. Uh, Otherwise, the church is weakened, right? So this was being done in the church. And that's what we saw in chapter 5. Now, coming off of that... What we, what we have here is one Christian making an, a charge against another Christian. They're in the same church, for instance, in, in Corinth. Or they're, they're just professing Christians, let's say. Now, do they take that situation to court? Well, looking at what we looked at last week in chapter 5, if they're professing Christians, they don't have to go to the court system. They really can work it out between the two of them. If you have something against your brother, what do you do? You go to that brother. Now, of course, they don't listen. What happens? We go through that whole procedure, right? Um, so they were really to settle the issue between themselves and dying to selves. Uh, therefore, they don't have to air it out to anybody else. But what they were doing in Corinth, can you believe this? Christians out of the same church were going to court outside the church and letting the world come to the conclusion to that. Now, these Corinthian Christians um, are no different than the pagan Christians, you know, in, in that sense, because that's what they were doing. They acted like unbelievers in their actions. And, of course, all the way through the book of Corinthians, as we peruse through here, we see that they, uh, so many times they are like carnal. And Paul talked about that in chapter 3. That is the battle, uh, the battle with the flesh. And so sometimes they looked like unbelievers. This is another area that Paul has to instruct them on. And the old lifestyle is still hanging on. You know, it's, it's still there. They're not shaking it off. It's, it's there. And sometimes it looks like it's dominating them. Now, whether it be this issue or the issue that we've talked about before or the issues that are to come throughout the rest of uh, the Corinthian epistle, uh, we would see that this common problem there is common right here in the American church today. It's not something that is far-fetched since 2,000 years ago and it doesn't apply, so why are we dealing with this issue, right? No, it's right there. What the church was doing was hanging out its dirty laundry for everybody to see out in the world. That's really what was happening. Okay, They're bringing the old baggage into church. Then the two people did not work it out amongst themselves. They said, okay, we'll let the courts figure this out. Those are unbelievers and they'll figure this out. When the church lets the world decide what Christians are doing is right and wrong, then we are in a terrible position, aren't we? Now, with all that said, you can say, what about when... uh, Are we ever to go to court? Well, the courts are set up for that. There is justice. 
And what happens between a believer and unbeliever? Well, obviously, you're not going to settle that in the church, and that has to be done. And there are certain situations, you know. So with that all lying before us, uh, we'll look at this context here. We're talking about believers in the church, and that's come off the discipline thing in chapter 5. So it rolls right into this. But uh, anyway, uh, Corinthians didn't have the right attitudes. They weren't taking the right actions. And they really had little respect for the authority of the church. The church has an, ex- an extreme amount of authority in the sense of here's how it to be carried out. And here's the best way. And for all concerned, and as we looked at last week. Okay, uh, let's take in chapter 6, the first three verses. And Paul comes right out here with a question. He says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Dare any of you do that? Now, Paul, it's like he's finding it hard to believe that they're running off to the secular courts to get matters settled that should be settled in in the church. Why take it before the unbelievers, Paul's saying? Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous? The unrighteous are unbelievers. People who are not not true. Um, The people of God have truth. The people of God have wisdom. The people of God have equity. They have justice. They have love. They have righteousness, don't they? And the unbelieving world out there, even though they are to practice those things, they are to go by the constitution and uh, system that's set up that is good and and right, uh, but that doesn't always happen. And so what I say, this is not a condemnation of civil courts. Don't say, yeah, Jesus... Dennis was talking about in church that we're never to, uh, to have court. We, we really shouldn't have any courts in this land. And don't take it that way, okay? Uh, we know that, that that is a thing of God, but it's just, it's just like government. It's part of the government there to protect us. But it's a regulation of Christian behavior in respect to Christian matters. And that can be done. It, 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 you know what? It's an admission of failure if we were to take a lawsuit between two Christians out to the world. It's saying that the church, is, uh, as far as its authority is concerned, has failed. It's like saying the pagan way is better than what we have in church. So, you know, when we look at this, we have a great doctrine. But we don't have the grace to get along. So we're going to take it out there. <laughs> That's really what they're kind of saying. Paul is saying, how dare you? Remember, my version started off with that. Dare any of you? How dare you? Have you ever used that? How dare you? When you ever hear anybody say that, you go, this is serious. Whenever they use that word dare. How dare you to go running off to the courts to settle matters, you Christians? Okay, there's verse 1. And then he says, don't you know, this is incredible here, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Had you guys really been thinking about that very much? We are going to judge the world? I mean, this is an incredible thought. I don't go around thinking about it too much, but whenever that passage comes up, it goes, I'm not so sure what that means, but that means we are, being, we are going to be put into a high position. You know, talking about in the future. We have a lofty destiny. Have you guys thought about that? 
lofty. We'll hold places of honor and influence. When you think of judges today, you know they, they get elected uh, by the people and such. We have an election coming up in, in a few weeks. Christians will one day sit in God's supreme court over the world because it says that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. That goes over my head. I can't explain all that means, but I can say this should stimulate us today to endure some of the hardship that we go through in just being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the short time we're here on earth. Because there is a day coming when the world will be judged and we will be called in to judge the world with Him. I say that is a privilege. Somehow He's going to call us into the courtroom and there will be a judgment and we won't be the ones being judged because where were we already judged? At the cross. The sin was taken away. As far as the east is from the west, God's grace is reigning upon us. And then we will be reigning, R-E-I-G-N, with Him. Now, Paul is asking them, hey, Aren't you qualified to judge in the small matters that come up now? This is small. The issue that you're dealing with now, that's nothing compared to what you're going to be doing. Surely you can handle it. You are equipped. When Christ comes up to set up the kingdom, we will be co-regents. We will have authority over the nations. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, I'm looking at verse 2 and that's what it says there, but there are other verses. Look at Matthew 19.28. There Jesus is talking to the apostles, first of all. I think this is exciting. You don't hear about this very much, do you? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, and that's speaking of the kingdom, Regeneration of the earth and the heavens. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. Don't you like that? Him sitting on the throne of glory, of grace. You who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones. How many apostles? Twelve apostles. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brother. I'll stop right there. Sitting on twelve thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, keep that in mind. He's speaking, first of all, to the apostles there. There is something to that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. And at verse 26 and 27, he says, And he who overcomes... Who's the overcomer? Ones who have faith. Ones who believe. And keeps my works until the end. Believers will keep his works. All the way to the end, he will make sure that we endure. To him I will give power over the nations. Here, uh, this is not only speaking of Christ, but it's talking about the ones who are with Him. Then He speaks of the Messiah. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. I also receive them from my Father and I'll give Him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There, Jesus is going to be ruling with a rod of iron. And He says in verse 26, 
To him, uh, the one who overcomes, I'll give power over the nations along with Christ. Well, let's keep going. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, if we endure, oh, it sounds like a big if. That's a big if. If we show that we are really truly Christians, if we go all the way to the end and Christians will persevere because of the power of Christ, if we endure, we shall also, what? Reign with Him. And that's a monarchical term. We will rule. We will reign with Him. We will judge the world. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Catch this. I think this is very exciting. Talking about the great white throne judgment, you say that's exciting. Well, in chapter 20, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Uh, do you see plural there? And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Now, we know Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, showing all his power and authority. But here you have thrones. The ones who reign with Christ will be with Christ dealing with judgment. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received His mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Someday. We will be ruling and reigning with Him when He has a rod of iron. And that rod of iron means He will will have to put out sin. This is talking about an age where there is still sin. There's glorification of the saints, but there are people who have been brought into that kingdom who have still sinned, who are not glorified. And there will be a ruling and reigning and a judging. So it's talking about a certain group of people who weren't necessarily believers or obedient. When Christ rules with a rod of iron, we can't be talking about an eternal state, but we're talking about... And He is ruling today, but there will be a time when He will be ruling and sin will be put out that quickly. And He says we will be judging the world. We'll be sitting on the thrones judging. That is why that, that's a time period when you really have to examine there and um, find out that, hey, this is, this is interesting um, about this judgment. If you look further um, in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. We will not be dead, for we will have been with the Lord. We will have been resurrected. That first resurrection has already happened. We will have been glorified as uh, we would uh, look in verse 1 through 3 and then 4 and such. Uh, But they're standing for God and the books are open. The dead are judged according to the works. Not according to God's grace of His uh, work on the cross, but their works. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. 
That's not us. We're not in death and Hades. We're not going to be judged at this great white throne judgment. That's already happened. There is a judgment seat of Christ where there is reward, our rewards that are given. But here is this judgment of works. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Would you like to be judged according to your works? Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that's all the people. Where are we going to be at? Verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. I don't know how all this works. I do know that God's Word is inspired. We've seen that we are going to be judging. We're going to be ruling. I don't want to read too much into it, but I can say... The saints are judging with Christ. Sitting with Him is tremendous. Every man that ever lived in humanity is going to be there. They're going to be standing before God. Those who are being judged. And praise God because we will not be judged at that seat. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know whether we'll be called to witness, to witness at that stand in the sense that when certain people would come up, God would call certain witnesses. I don't know, but it could be that possibly in the sense that we come up and He says, that man right there gave you the Gospel. That man gave you the Gospel 20 times. And other people gave you the Gospel. And there they are right there. They are witnesses. You gave him a tract. You gave that person a tract and you still rejected the gospel. You spoke, there was uh, where we could be witnesses, where we spoke to a person about his soul and he was unrepentant. I don't know if that's going to happen. All I do know is it says that we will judge. The Bible really doesn't declare the details. But Paul says this in Corinthians, Know ye not that we shall judge the world. That's incredible. That's, that's a future time period. He says, this is what you're going to do. But in the meantime, and if the world be, will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And he's speaking in the present tense. If you're going to have that kind of power, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be ruling over nations. Think of that, folks. It's incredible. You don't hold any office here now, but in that time period, you will. And or be a part of it. Now, uh, verse 3 is even more incredible. And Paul is asking these questions. Do you not know that we, will, we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life right now? But he says, here's what we're going to do. We are going to judge angels. Not only judge the world, the people in it who are unbelievers, we're going to help in some way, going to be... But now he says angels. And first thought that comes to me is judging the fallen angels. Um, exercising some kind of rule over the, even the, the good angels, the holy angels. Revelation 3 verse 12. Have you ever thought of this? Have you ever thought of the authority that is going to be given to us in our glorified bodies? The Bible has a lot to say about it. He who overcomes. Who's the one that overcomes? The believer. His, his victory. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now we will we will have a new name. Now keep on going in chapter three in verse twenty one. Talking about the overcomer. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. The one who overcomes. He, that, that means a position of authority, a position of power whenever He speaks of thrones. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, we know there were the good angels, there were the bad angels. There was a situation where the angels fell okay, from heaven. A third of them, right? But there were a certain lot of angels who did some kind of very consequential sin, a terrible sin, and God has put them in chains of darkness. That's an abyss. That's the place where the angels... um, uh, Actually, if you remember, uh, not angels, but uh, the pigs. The Gadarenes pig situation. And they cried out, Oh, don't throw us into the abyss. Do you remember that? They were... um, I mean, those were the demons and Christ cast them into the pigs and they went into the sea. They didn't want to go into that abyss where some angels were put in chains of darkness and they're reserved for judgment. There's going to be a judgment, a special judgment for those angels who did some terrible, evil, wicked sin apparently to humans. Look in Jude 6, just before Revelation. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just to show you that these are not just all of the bad angels. They were all put in judgment already. They're all just in chains. That's not true. Because we know Satan roars around about like a lion today. We know that Ephesians 6 says we battle with the enemy. The principalities and the powers. Those are all the angelic uh, demons and such that we battle with. Ephesians 6, that's, that's in, in, in the church age. But there were some that were put in an everlasting chain who cannot get out. And they were bound. And um, so he, he's using these angelic fallen beings having been reserved for judgment in uh, some later day. So we need to know, believer, that we are going to take part in judging angels and it could be these bad ones that have been reserved for judgment. Somehow, some way, he's going to give um, us that position. Look in Ephesians 1, 20-23. It's that great prayer. 
and that we would know the power that's been given to us. Verse 20, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. That's speaking of the angelic uh, realms. Maybe the, the demons in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Christ has been raised up far above that. We too will be put in, in that kind of position. Above all the angels. If we're in Christ, then it, you know, if we are to reign with Him, it must be that somehow we'll share in His authority. We know we can at least put that out with all the verses that we've seen. And if we're to judge the world and the angels, as Paul has just suggested here in Corinthians we're surely able to settle matters of disagreement between ourselves, between two people. When we're talking about the responsibility of judging the world and angels, we can surely take another person and discuss things with them and try to come to some agreement with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, right? Do I get an amen out of that? We have everything we need to keep from taking it any further between two Christians. They should always be able to do that. You who are called and set apart, you should be able to do this. You're going to judge the world and the angels one of these days. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He's not just just taking this up to an extreme and just throwing that out. There is something there that is absolute truth. I think that is overwhelming. And I think he's made a point with this question, hasn't he? Don't you know this? So evidently, it's it's all like he's talked to them about this. Now we go to this next section. This is talking about the bad attitudes we see in their behavior in verses 4 through 8. Let's read that. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. He says, you're all puffed up in your wisdom. Remember how he's been saying puffed up all along? They have all this great wisdom. And he says here, there doesn't seem to be a wise man among you. You should be able to figure this out. The statement, is it so? Is this so? You don't have the wisdom to be able to do this? Uh, Paul could be saying, has it come to this that there isn't one wise man among you when you have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit? There were some, probably some of the most educated men you'd ever want to meet at that time because they were from Greece. And the Greek society was very intelligent, at least as far as the worldly matters go. They were the philosophers, but they were ignorant of spiritual things. So, if you're the ones who are to judge a church, do you bring men into the church, as it were? Not bringing those judges into the church, but with, you know, they're not esteemed by the church. And, and they're unbelievers, they're, they're unrighteous, Paul says, they're unsanctified. And you're going to let them judge you? 
Do you see the point that he's making? Boy, I mean, it's clear, isn't it? I mean, there is nothing to argue with here. I mean, it's right there. This is the tragedy of all. They were esteeming and reckoning human ability the way that pagan Corinth did things and copying what the world did and seeing it as being a more and better effective way than the way that God designed. I think He has convicted them again. Would you not? Boy, Paul could have been a great lawyer in court. But you know what? I'm glad he was an apostle (laughs) and to give us this wisdom here. Well, in verse 6, we see that it was a terrible witness. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. You see, that's a characteristic of carnality. People will fight over nonsense. And we're talking about things that really should be able to be solved. It says you're not concerned about eternal things. What's really important, the world sees this, the world then comes to the conclusion, well, that's the Christian, and that's his gospel. The gospel doesn't work. The gospel's a farce when they see what Christians are doing. Well, this is what a Christian, right? Paul is saying the only one that wins when brother takes brother to the law is the one who is simple. The world watches on. The power of the gospel is diminished. And the Christian can never go higher than they go deeper. And they're like well-developed tree. If one is standing on Christ's Word, we just it's just like a tree that stands tall. It goes down deep also. That's his nature. That's his character. He's rooted in that. Well, these trees were maybe looking tall, but they had no roots underneath. So, you think about the Corinthians. They were in a very strategic place. One of the major cities in the world of the day. And that city was filthy. It was so depraved. It was wretched. So sinful. And that's a great place for the gospel to be, isn't it? Because if you have nothing but all believers, then you don't need to take the gospel out to these people because always have. we need to be reminded of the gospel constantly. But as far as taking it to a lost world, they're out there. And boy, were they ever in a situation. They have a clean heart because of what Christ had done them. They should have a strong character. That's how they live this. And if you have a strong character, you're going to have a fruitful witness. So if you're rooted deeply, the fruit will come out. The fruit will get bigger and obvious. And that's what we want to do for letting the world see what God has done. They needed purity there in Corinth. Uh, When we look at verse 7, he says, now therefore it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. This is an utter failure. Why don't you rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather yourselves be cheated? He says, give yourselves up. Okay. You don't win it with them and they want it. And they want it so bad. And we're talking about things that are controllable. There's other issues that have to be taken care of. We know that. This is where wisdom comes in. This is where, and this is where the church helps and can help instruct and we go to Word and check that out. Um, but you look in Matthew 18, verse 23. 
Jesus says in 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. What's that? Forgiveness. He says, keep on forgiving. Just keep on forgiving. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him and he owed him 10,000 talents. But he is not able to pay his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master, that servant, was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Now, he's been forgiven. There was no way. It was impossible. He would never be able to pay it back. He now has been forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Now, that same servant who was forgiven, what did he do? That servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, something that could be paid back over a period of time. Maybe even not. But this is a lesser amount than what he owed. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe right now. Can't you see that? He's just been forgiven. Then he goes out to that guy and starts choking him. So his fellow servant fell down on his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. How is he going to pay the debt in prison, right? So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. We have been graced. We have been forgiven. Now, can we practice that same grace and forgiveness on people who do not deserve it too? And that's the whole idea of what Paul is saying here. Hey, why do you not rather accept wrong? Okay, if they've done you wrong and you, and you can't get it settled, that person is not going to have peace with you, okay, let yourself be cheated then. What's the big deal? He says, don't take it out there. If you can't get, it, get this done between you and, and the church has done all that it can, uh, suffer wrong then. Say, well, I can't do that. That's, that's not right. But we can do that. We are to be willing to be judged in the wrong. We don't want to you know, defraud another brother, but we might have to be defrauded. Right? Their attitude was they had no humility and they would suffer no wrong. In 1 Corinthians 13 later on, he says love suffers no wrong. We don't do wrong things to people. But we are patient. And we endure. And we get down to where there's only hope left. And uh, he's telling them to die themselves. He says, you're making a big old fuss over nothing. Big deal. Okay. It's $100,000. Stretched that pretty far, didn't I? <laughs> But you know, it's only money. Or it's only my hurt pride. Jesus says, forget yourself. Take up the cross, follow me. Jesus says, forgiving 70 times 7. Wow, Jesus, you're really asking for a little bit too much here. That is going overboard. 
Just remember, the grace that He gave us was overboard. (laughs) Forgive us. He forgave us for eternity. And we'll never have our sin against us ever again. That's forgiveness, folks. And He's asking them to do that. Last section here. 9 through 11. This is talking about this is if we don't follow this and if we're going out into the world and doing those things like they were doing he says that's totally contrary to the very nature of what a christian is he says you're looking like some of these unbelievers that are so wicked out in the world and he's he's talking to church here he's talking to believers at least professing believers When he goes into verse 9, he's going to start giving us a little catalog of sins. Not going to list them all, because we could go on and on and on and on and on. But he is giving us an idea of what they had used to be. They used to carry some of these same terrible sins. Look Look at these sins, these terrible sinners. Do you not know, don't you know this, that the unrighteous, unbelievers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know that, right? That's an obvious question. Well, of course they're not. If they remain in their sin, they won't get the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. Okay. And now he's going to start mentioning some sins that definitely happened in Corinth. And by the way, when you look at this, you can go, well, this sounds like sins that happened here in Jeff City. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? And then he says, and such were some of you. You came from that, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. He says, yeah, that's what you were. And I want to tell you something. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a way to move somebody, isn't it? Yeah, that's what you were. I've I got to remind you that's where you came from and that means you were like headed to hell. And look what Christ did for you. Look how what you came out. You're looking like that though. Okay, characteristic of unbelievers there. Some of the people in the church had done some of these things. You're saying they were homosexuals? Yeah, they have former homosexuals in the church. So a, you mean they had drunkards in there? Yeah, they were former drunkards. Their life has changed. You mean there's idolaters in there? Yeah. Are there those same kind of people in our church today? Yeah. Such were some of us. Right? We were there. So whenever we see people with that sin, don't concentrate on so much sin in the fact that, hey, they've been forgiven. That's where they came from. God has done a great work. He still has a work to do. He's still working on us. But that, those are marks of unbelievers. They're not going to enter the kingdom. Oh, Paul was saying, why are you going back to the, the old way of life? Why are you hanging on to those things that... 
describe what you once were and you're not. Why, why are you relying on Why are you taking your problems to the world's courts? Okay, you're not a drunkard anymore. You're not a homosexual anymore. You're not an adulterer anymore. But you're going out in the world's courts and you're taking uh, Brother Joe over here in, into court. What, what's the deal? You know, the listing of these sins here, they're not exhaustive, are they? But they represent the major types of moral sins that characterize ungodly societies. You know what? This characterizes the United States of America. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, sodomy, thieves, coveting, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. That's just a few. That is going on here. We identify with that. Fornicators, what are those? It has to do with sexual immorality in general. It's the word porneia. We get the word pornography. I think Paul has mentioned this word before. This is one of the biggest problems in our society today. Oh, it goes on. And of course, uh, television, movies, books, every kind of avenue you think of, they glorify this. And uh, fornication is wicked. God has put... Um, uh, uh, Sex is a thing that's inside the, uh, marriage. And that's a good thing. That's a great blessing. And God has done that for us. But uh, anything outside of it is wrong. Those who practice this sin, and they continue to practice it, and they still profess to be believers, but they continue to keep on doing that, they're not believers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God if they know that and they continue. Idolaters, those are who worship false gods or religions. Of course, we all have our little idols that we're hanging on to. All of this is, in some sense, can still be in our hearts. We still battle some of these things, but hopefully, outwardly, this is, these are not things that are things we're practicing. Those who worship false gods or any other kind of religion, they did that. They came from that Corinthian world. They had many gods that they worshipped. Athens, remember, they had every kind of. Uh, God that you can think of and even the ones they couldn't think of then they had one to the unknown God, right? That's where Paul came from. That's what they believed in in Greece. The adulterers, what are these? These are people who have sex outside marriage relationship. We know that the Old Testament did with that. Required the death penalty. Pretty serious. And then we have the homosexuality. Uh, This includes... um, We know that uh, men with men, women with women... We see Romans 1 talk about that. We see the Old Testament talk about it. Here's a passage right here in Corinthians that talks about it. If you have this sin, you practice it, well, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This includes transvestites. It includes sex changes, homosexuality, other perversions that you can think of that just go on and on. God never ever intended that for male or female genders to be crossed, to be the same. Men wearing women's clothing and women wearing men's clothing, and, and but men having sex relations with men—it's just—it's just unbelievable the, the corruption that's involved there. Well, this sin has been going on for thousands of years. It's nothing, anything new. But now you see more and more, and it's becoming a popular thing. Matter of fact, if you say anything against it today out on the street, you will be thought of as. Uh, some kind of strange person that maybe needs to be put behind bars. And um, in some places that's called hate crimes just to say it's wrong. What we're talking of here today in Canada, from what I understand, uh, 
uh, I'd probably be taken out of the pulpit and be thrown into jail just for reading this passage. Uh, we're following the ways of Canada in a lot of ways. Uh, but this problem has frequently destroyed empires. Look at Rome. We know that's what happened. Look at Greece. Same thing that happened. They embraced this kind of lewdness. Socrates, Plato were homosexuals. Those are the great philosophers of the world. The greatest minds. Almost all the Caesars were homosexuals. And even Nero had a, had a little boy that he kept and had relations with this boy. And then as I think he willed this boy, you know, he dies at this, the, the next Caesar or somebody else would get him. This is a work of Satan. Satan destroys the family. It's an institution of God. We find it in Genesis. We see exactly how it's set out. And we see what happens to society when this happens. The Greek and Roman societies were destroyed because of this. We know Sodom and Gomorrah. That's one of the big sins that was going on there. We can't deny it. This is the way it's been. This is what God says. This is what He expects. And when a nation does not do that, they will be judged. I think we're well on to our way uh, to a demise. The, the corrupt world is breaking up. And it's falling. You ever seen brick get weak? And it's being chipped away. Foundation is going. The thieves and the covetous, these people are bad too. They're bad just like the homosexuals. They're bad just like the fornicators. They're all in the same boat. And even if you never ever did any of these things, which I bet you you all did some of them or one of them, it gets down to being thievery or uh, a reviler or covetous. If you didn't have any of those, you were covetous. And Paul recognized that he was covetous. What is that? Well, it relates to sin and greed. Both of these, uh, thievery and and, uh, covetousness, is just greedy. The covetous person desires something that another has. He desires it in his own mind and he wants that so bad. But the thief doesn't stop with that. He just takes it. (laughs) Same kind of desires, but he takes it, right? People are not satisfied with what they have. That's the whole point here. They're not satisfied. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. When we are content with whatever He has given us. If you're content in life, no matter what it is that you have or don't have, just content with that, God gets so much glory. Whether I'm abounding in riches or you know what it likes to be, be like poor. Paul said something like that, didn't he? People always want more. That is a mark of an unbeliever. They want more. And then they get that and they want more. How much is enough? Never. If you get your first million, then you're going to have to protect that million and you're going to have to get another million. Then when you get that million, then you want more million. They say, well, I've got to... They want a billion. Ask all the the billionaires in the world and they want another billion. It's never enough. Greed is a characteristic of unbelievers. Did you guys hear that? Wow, that convicts us all because we're always looking for the next thing to make us happy. 
And it doesn't make us happy because the next week we're ready for something else. The drunkards. Alcohol. Alcoholism today is rampant. Alcoholism is all the way from the teens all the way to the elders. It covers the whole gamut. The harm it does on families is immeasurable. What it does out on the highway, it kills people. It tears families up. And you can go on and on all that it does and it destroys the person and eventually that uh, can destroy their livers and they die. And One who is controlled by that alcohol, uh, as it says here, drunkards, if they are uh, controlled by that, if that's their consistent basis, they too uh, will go to um, hell. There is no kingdom for them. As it says in verse 9, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All these sins. You can go on and on and on with any sin. Just any sin. Some people may not have these outward sins. It may be just inward. Remember, that strips us all down. What's a reviler? A reviler tries to destroy people with the use of their tongues. They kill with their words. Their hearts are filled with poison. And they hate and the tongue comes out and they cause pain and despair when that tongue attacks. It causes that. Revilers. They hate people. And swindlers, what's an extortioner or a swindler? They steal indirectly. They're embezzlers. They're extortioners. They're false advertisers. You don't really get what you think you're getting, right? That is a mark of un- unbelievers. Listen. Every sinner or every Christian is a sinner who has been drawn to Christ. And whether it be some of these outward obvious sins or whether it be just the pride and covetousness, every Christian is an ex-sinner. And we're all in the same boat. It didn't matter what you did. You were in a terrible situation that was sunk. You were at the bottom. The anchor took you down. You are dead. You cannot try to swim back up. That's the position that you're in. in that. But Christ comes all the way down into the bottom of the ocean and picks us up out of that, brings us up, gives us life, and we're new beings. It's all a work of Him. No one sins so bad that he can't be saved. You've seen some terrible sins here. The beauty of it all is that it doesn't matter what they've done. Christ can forgive them. And I think everybody here can identify with with our past lives. We become a new man. We now have the ability to live. We can now choose to do good things because He has given us a new mind New emotions, a new will. He's given us a new person, a new you. We have the character now of a Christian. We are now being made like Christ. We were unregenerate, but now we have been cleansed. We're not bound by those sins anymore. Don't you like that? We're not bound by that. Look at the nature of the righteous. We just saw the sins in 9 and 10. Look at verse verse 11. Such were some of you. It were those things. But you were washed. And what's the idea there? I like Titus chapter 3 verse 5. And we're getting ready to close this down here. Titus, right after the, the Timothys, 
talks about a washing. God, talking about our Savior, uh, He appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We were washed. He did it. Not our works. Washed speaks of a new life, regeneration. We were sanctified. That means being set apart. New behavior. We are now holy. We now have the ability to live a holy life. And then it says, you're washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord. And what's justified? Romans 3.26. Can't turn down the um, this passage of reading it. Romans 3.26. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He justifies us. We are justified. Romans 4.22. There He speaks of the same thing. And therefore it was accounted to Him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Being declared righteous before a holy God. Transformed by the Holy Spirit. As he says here at the end of verse 11, the Corinthians were transformed. Some were acting like they were not transformed. Look at Todd Agnew's shirt last night. That red shirt, what did he have across the top of it? Transformed. When they took other believers to court, they were acting like their former selves. They were acting like this list of sins. They were not. They had been regenerated. They had been born again. God has provided the washing and the sanctifying and the justifying and His power to live out this righteous life. And we are to absorb that in. To bring in the very Spirit of Christ and cast His fragrance out that's been brought into us out into the world. And you know what? There's a story of a, of a man who had um, some oil and it was perfume and it smelled just wonderful and beautiful. Only thing is, in that container, it actually broke and it went over all over the place. This stuff smelled great. Do you know it penetrated into that area and 25 years later, that beautiful oil, that great smell, that great aroma was still there because it penetrated into there and became one with that that in that room and that it was spilled on. The fragrance goes out all around us. If we have God's Spirit in us, our fragrance should be spread out and let people take in the aroma of who God is. Let's close with prayer.